0: All right, I want to make sure I'm at the right spot. (laughs) So good to be with you this morning to help fill in while Andrew and Amanda are on vacation. I guess we could have been praying for safe travels for them and, and time with their family down in sunny, warm Florida. Today, we are just on the cusp of the beginning of Lent. But before we begin that journey that ultimately leads to the cross, We have today the day of transfiguration. So as we begin this morning, I'm wondering if you've ever thought a whole lot about this, a related word, the word transformation, which is defined as a thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance. And if you've not thought a whole lot about that word, I'm wondering if you've ever thought how much, excuse me, how you know when you've encountered a transformation. I've decided that we're pretty obsessed with transformation in American culture, certainly in the past 15, 20 years. Turn on any television channel or streaming service, you can watch transformation unfold before your very eyes. The orange shag carpet is finally pulled out, the hidden beautiful hardwood floors underneath are restored to their former glory on shows like Magnolia or anything on HGTV, right? Shows abound that transform people's closets or hairstyles or physiques. Sometimes we even watch the shows where they transform cars, like Hot Rod Garage, where rust buckets are transformed to glorious, shiny, metallic life. And if you go a step further, really every time we walk into a store, it's an invitation for us to be transformed because we're told every purchasing decision we make can transform us and our lives into whatever it is we want them to be. We only need to buy the right clothes, the right food, remodel the kitchen, trade in for the truck we really want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Also, fun fact, I taught my seven-year-old the word etc. this week, so he still doesn't understand what it's used for. So <laughs> but I'm wondering this morning if transformation is only limited to things that we can see with our two eyes, with our sense of sight. Does it only count as transformation if we visually see a change before our eyes? Or is it possible that we might be able to hear transformation too? Our text this morning invites us to consider this very question together. I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard Version from Matthew 16, beginning with verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it turns out this text is not merely talking about transformation, right? We're talking about transfiguration. And you know, this is, it's an odd text, isn't it? We, we hear it once a year, at least. We know it's coming. But it's kind of one that stumps me. I know we read it every year, right, in the Gospels. But it's not one, I think, that we spend a great deal of time mulling over or picking apart or trying to understand. Or at least that has been the case for myself. In my mind, this kind of always fit under the category of hashtag weird things Jesus did, and I just kind of accepted it and then moved on. Thank you. But today, as we're poised to begin the season of Lent on Wednesday, and we begin this journey to the cross alongside Jesus, isn't it curious, why do we need to hear these verses now? And how does this event fit in the greater narrative of God's redemption through Jesus Christ's crucifixion and death and resurrection that we know we're just a little ahead of unfolding before us in the pages that are coming? So as I often do, I decided I was going to start all these questions with a deep and profound journey all the way to the dictionary on my MacBook because I wanted to understand, well, I know what transformation is, but what is transfiguration? And here's what it says. Transfiguration is a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. Transformation didn't say anything about it being beautiful. It just said dramatic change. So naturally, my mind thought, okay, where have I... Seen this played out in life, and my mind quickly arrived at Disney's animated film *Beauty and the Beast*. Now, I loved that movie when it came out, but I've not watched it recently. But when I heard that definition of transfiguration, I immediately thought of the scene at the end of the movie when Belle is returned to the castle. So let's watch it. Now. You... transfiguration yes and as the scenes unfolding just before that we're not really sure what's going to happen we know Beast has been injured in a fight she murmurs the words I love you but then the rose petal falls so we don't really know what's going to happen but then it becomes clear that he is being transfigured the spells lifted he's transformed by light and that light radiates from his toes and his fingers and his head. It's truly a visual wonder, is it not? But just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that Jesus used to look like Beast, and then after the mountain, now he looks like the prince. It's not what I'm saying, although it is funny to think about. I'm just pointing out that that imagery of light shooting out from toes and fingers and head might be a good example of the kind of thing that we're talking about here. That this might be what transformation and transfiguration could look like. Because the Gospel writer of Matthew is trying really hard to use words to explain something that happened. Unfortunately, there was no iPhone to video it. Uh, He couldn't put it on YouTube for us to watch today. So it didn't go viral. Right? In fact, we're told only 13, oh, excuse me, only 3 of the 12 disciples even saw this happen. And if we'd kept reading in, in chapter 17, the nev- very next thing we would have come upon in verse 9 is Jesus telling Peter, James, and John, hey, I don't really want you to tell anybody about this. I want you to keep it to yourselves. It's very mysterious, isn't it? And there's every indication that this transformation is primarily a visual one. But once again, I want us to ponder, what if we're also hearing transformation? Now, admittedly, there are many rabbit holes we could go down together this morning in this text. There's lots of interesting things that people say, interesting things that happen. We could spend a lot of time connecting the experience that we know Moses had on the mountain with God back in the book of Exodus with the one that Jesus has here. We could also contemplate the similarities between Elijah's encounters with God on the mountain with those of Jesus in this text. Just rest assured, the echoes and the commonalities are all there. From going up to a mountain to having a face that glowed, it's clear there are all kinds of connections being forged here deliberately between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. But instead of spending all of our time analyzing those deeply, which I would, in fact, enjoy doing, I'm not going to lie, I want us to ask a few other questions instead, like what was it that made Jesus be transformed on that mountain? Was it because he went up the mountain? I'm wondering, was there like a secret internal button somewhere that activated once he arrived on the top of the mountain, you know, kind of like Optimus Prime in the Transformer movies? And at first, when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, maybe he was transformed when the cloud descended upon them. That's mentioned in verse 5. While he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Which makes pretty good, logical, even biblical sense, I'd say, because there are so many places in the Old Testament where the people see God as a cloud. Think about when they were escaping from Egypt in the book of Exodus, and it says a cloud tr- excuse me, I'm a pillar, excuse me, a pillar of fire by night, but a pillar of cloud during the day that traveled with them as they journeyed. Even the tabernacle that they set up in the wilderness to worship God were told that when God appeared, it was in the form of a cloud. So yes, this is yet another example of reading the word cloud, but we should actually instead hear the word theophany, a god sighting, But it turns out I was wrong about when this transfiguration actually happened. It didn't happen in verse 5 when the cloud descended upon them. It happened way back in verse 2. So what or who made Jesus transfigure? And I still have lots of questions about that. What was that really like? It tells us that his face glowed. How long did it keep glowing? Did the other disciples notice it when they came back down from the mountain? You know, when Moses returned from the mountain and returned to the Israelites, they said his face was so bright and glowing they couldn't even look at him. The best I can offer is this idea that perhaps here there's a connection being made to what happened with Jesus and the concept of God's Shekinah glory, or God's splendor. And I, my hunch is that is what transfigured Jesus. In that moment, the full glory of God settled on Jesus, and the disciples were allowed to visualize it. Another curious part of this passage is when Moses and Elijah show up and they start chatting with Jesus. Wouldn't you love to know what they're talking about there? Are they talking about the Exodus? Are they talking about the temple? Are they talking about the football game last week? We don't really know, but I really wish I did. Maybe Moses and Elijah are giving Jesus tips on how to make a really dramatic exit. Or maybe they're giving Jesus encouragement because the road ahead is filled with difficulty and pain and suffering. Perhaps it's a little encouragement session, 101 different ways of saying, you've got this, Jesus. You can do this. But the thing that I'm most curious about in this passage is why this voice from the cloud, whom I'm presuming is God, say, says these words to Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That should sound familiar to you. We've heard it before. We heard it back in chapter 3 of Matthew when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. As he emerges out of the water, the voice from heaven says this exact thing. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But here we get a little something extra that we didn't get in chapter 3. The voice adds, listen to him. Listen to him. Hmm. Not look at him. Not to apply some sunscreen to their faces and bask in his radiant glowing but to listen to him. So here's my question that I keep bringing up. Is the transfiguration really not about what's visually happening, what's discernible with their eyes, but instead about what the disciples heard with their ears? I mean, if you're asking me, I think that would have been a great thing for God to have said back in chapter 3. After he comes out of the water, because right after his baptism is when Jesus started preaching and teaching and instructing the people in the wisdom of God's kingdom, which y'all have been talking now about for several weeks, right? It seems like the admonition, hey, y'all need to listen to him, would have been more appropriate at that time, right? But that's not at all where we have this admonition to listen. We have it here at this moment in the story of Jesus' life. Immediately after, by the way, the first time that Jesus tells his disciples of his coming death. That's what we read at the end of chapter 16, beginning with verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And now, this is when God says, Listen to him. You know what's ironic, or perhaps not very ironic, is that we haven't changed a whole lot in the past 2,000 years, humans, because we don't want to listen. (laughs) We don't want to ponder hard things or difficult things. Or painful things, do we? We'd much rather just sit around and dig our heads down in the sand and just pretend that those things aren't really happening around us. Duke Divinity School professor Kate Bowler makes note of this in several several of her recent best-selling books. One is called Everything Happens for a Reason (Parentheses and Other Lies I've Loved), and more recently no cure for being human. The former I read a couple of years ago when it first came out, and the latter I just finished this week, both deal with her grappling with what we say we believe in this life, right? Like everything happens for a reason. And she connects it with her experience of being diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer as a 35-year-old and how those messages are so different. And she writes very poignantly about the way that all of our human desires to transform our lives into perfection are ultimately distractions. And she points out how uncomfortable we are with the difficult seasons and situations that inevitably arise in all of our lives, writing, we find it especially difficult to talk about anything chronic, meaning any kind of pain, whether it's emotional or physical, that abides with us constantly. After all, she says, the sustaining myth of the American dream rests heavily on a hearty, can-do spirit, surmounting all obstacles. But not all problems can be overcome. Because any persistent suffering requires us, requires being afraid. But who can stay awake to fear for so long? So I'm wondering, friends, this morning, if our call from Jesus is being asked, just as the disciples have been asked, to listen to Jesus. And to not do what we'd really love to do, to excuse away this statement from God, from these words of Jesus as an anomaly, oh, well, he was just having a hard day. He, he just had something really bad happen the day before, so his frame of mind wasn't great. And perhaps it's an invitation to realize that Jesus is, has been transformed, not necessarily primarily in the way he looks but in his focus and in his words. And the admonition to listen to him is a call for all of us to pay attention to all that's about to unfold in the pages of scripture, in the Lenten season that is just before us, and to pay close attention to everything that's happening in the community around us and in the world in which we live. A call to not ignore the difficult and the painful to not try and explain it away as untrue or someone just having a really bad day? What if that's what God is asking us to listen to closely? And what if we're being asked to do that because it is hard and because it is difficult, and also because we know what's waiting on the other side of all that is difficult, this promise of new life? Because lest we forget, the promise of good news is tacked on to the very last thing Jesus said to his disciples. Yes, these I will suffer and die and be crucified, but I will be raised up on the third day. I feel pretty confident the disciples had absolutely no idea what Jesus was talking about. They also probably had no idea what this glowing radiance on the mountain was about either. But in the end, we know that they listened to him. They remembered. They, too, were transformed from being afraid into being bold tellers of the good news of Jesus. So now, friends, it is our turn to decide. Will we, too, listen?